Yes. I've ever attended. A day and a half, that's it. That's the last session and everyone, people write their papers. Well, why don't, informally, why don't we just talk about what, uh, what, what you and, and Adam might like to... Yeah, well, why don't you get started? I mean, if you read it, we can talk. Do uh, we'll a schedule school first, I think.
Vancouver. Ah, yes, yes. Okay, no, oh, you know. Oh, Girard, Girard, okay, that's my, that's my bad American accent. Yes, because accent. Uh, French in English, for yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> difficult to understand. Right. Okay, Sorry. all right, so, so, I mean, she speaks Portuguese. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you're not the three languages here. Sometimes it's difficult to understand the names in English. Sorry. It's okay. So Gerard, in any case, argues that human beings are fundamentally nomadic, which is to say they imitate each other. Right. There's a kind of evolutionary component in this, to the to the extent that obviously the higher animals are, the more nomadic they are, the more they learn from each other, the more they imitate each other, and so on. Um, so what Girard um, sort of discovered, argued, is that um, mimesis leads to conflict, right? It leads to conflict because if we're imitating each other, we end up wanting the same thing. Desire is mimetic as well. Right? Now he developed this through a theory of uh, the novel, first of all, showing how this, the novels are constructed through this triangular structure of desire where there's always two protagonists who end up sort of converging on the same object of desire. And his idea is that the reason they, they converge, they, each one wants it because the other one wants it. Right? So desire leads to violence in this case. So then the fundamental problem for human beings is how to you know, control this violence, to, to, to prevent it from undermining any possibility of community. Now, Girard's theory was that the way this is done is through the scapegoat mechanism, or what he sometimes calls the victimary mechanism which is to say one member of the community is selected out and essentially killed. Oh, so victimary means scapegoat. Right, well that's, that's kind of the starting point. Then for Gans, it, it kind of takes on these other meanings as right. well. Right. Um, but that, yeah, it starts, it, it starts with Girard. In other words, some victimization is at the foundation of, of, of any human community. So for Girard, this is the origin of the human. Right? The human begins with the establishment of a scapegoat. And for him, this is also the origin of, um, uh, um, of religion because the scapegoat um, essentially is, is transformed into God, right? Because after the killing is done, the one killed, the victim, is then commemorated as the one who founded the community, right? So there's this kind of duality, this kind of ambivalence towards, uh, towards the victim. And Girard kind of traces this not only through the novel, but through mythology. So there's all these mythological figures. If you, if you kind of look closely at these, at, at these myths, then there's always kind of this, this story of, of, of a murder kind of at, at, at the bottom of it. Okay, now, um, I mean, Gans questions some of that, but this, Gans starts with the same assumption that desire is nomadic and then we converge on the same object and that therefore preventing violence, controlling violence, regulating violence is sort of the central problem for the human community, violence against each other, right? So he, he defines humanity as that species which poses a greater threat to itself than is posed to it by any external force. There is one more of the danger to each other than anything out there in the natural world is a danger to us. For Gans, the way in which the problem is solved is not through the scapegoat. He, he kind of talks about the scapegoat, but he places that much later in, in history. For Gans, Gans argues that all you really need is a sign. In other words, if you imagine what he calls an original, originary event or originary scene, where everybody is reaching for some central object. And they're all reaching for it. And at a certain point, they can see that they're heading for this violent confrontation. One of them puts forward, or in some combination, it's, 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 you don't have to picture it too you know, precisely. Someone puts forward a, what he calls um, the aborted gesture of appropriation. In other words, essentially, there's a hesitation. And this hesitation is the first sign 
this is the beginning of language. That's sort of the first meaningful um, sign put forward by human beings, right? So pointing towards the object, it's kind of it's got a referent, it's got a sort of meaning to it. The meaning to it is that we all kind of stop right now and we kind of allow, in a sense, the object to be. Okay, so that's so so again, this is this is the origin of uh, of language, and what it means is that representation is the deferral of violence. So that's essentially what language does and what all the institutions that follow, rituals and, and, and religion and culture and, and so on. And so human history essentially can be seen as the development of increasingly sort of effective and, and, and generalizable but always fragile mechanisms of the fur, right? Ways of preventing you know, outbreaks of, of mimetic desire and the violence that follows from it. Um, Okay, so the way in which I'm going to kind of cut over lines, he, he talks about uh, um, you know sort of primitive community. He talks about um, uh, what what he calls he's he's borrowing from uh, what's his name uh, uh, not Salins but, but but another anthropologist. What he calls the big man um, form of culture, where it's kind of organized around one sort of central, sort of god-king figure. And he traces through Judaism and Christianity. He's kind of got a, a way of accounting for all of this. But ultimately, um, to get us to talk about anti-Semitism, he sees the most sophisticated means of deferral that, that human beings have invented so far as being the modern market system, essentially. right? And you can think about why that would be if you, if you think about dividing um, sort of an economic product. The most primitive way of doing it would be you know, to have one sort of object and everybody sort of you know grabs a piece out of it. Then a somewhat more sophisticated way of doing it would be each member of the community, again whether they're families or individuals, doesn't really matter, has you know a certain amount of, of property for themselves and they exchange through barter. And this is what uh, Marcel Maus calls a gift community, a gift economy, right, which is based on um, you know again the simplest way of thinking about it is is you know if I invite you to dinner for this Friday, you sort of invite me, you know, a couple of Fridays down the road, right? You don't invite me Saturday, right? There's kind of a, you know, a logic to it, right? You don't have to, you know, repay the gift right away. There's a sort of decorum and and and, uh, um, and, and, and the sort of, uh, you know, there's kind of rules about it, you know, informal rules about it. You'll invite me maybe next Friday or a couple of Fridays down the road. So this is a gift economy, which is more efficient than everybody just kind of grabbing the you know, the same object and kind of tearing a piece out of it. But at the same time, it's still, you know, it requires you to kind of bring an object to somebody else and they bring an object to you and so on. And so the next step is, is essentially the introduction of money, which allows me to trade, you know, with you without having any contact with you at all, right? You, 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 you sell something to him and I buy it from him, right, using money. So this is a more sophisticated means of deferral because then there's more objects out there in the world and each person kind of, you know, gets an object that's more impersonal, so we're not always struggling over, over, over the same objects and so on. And so he kind of sees, you know, the development of, of the market through history and, of course, ultimately modernity where you have a sort of full-blown market system as a gradual movement away from, you know, sort of more primitive and, in a sense, less effective, more fragile means of deferral, which are focused on, on a very kind of strictly organized ritual system and, and so on. Okay, so now we can start talking about anti-Semitism. Anyone has, has questions along the way, you can ask. But um, 
It's in the context of the modern market system that Gans first situates anti-Semitism. Now I'm going to read a quote from Gans when he's talking about anti-Semitism. Uh, the Jew is not, in some undefined sense, a scapegoat for the larger society's frustrations. He serves as a model of the inexistent and unfigurable center of the market system. The Jew, having rejected the incarnation, incarnates the truly unincarnable mediation. In the post-ritual world of market exchange, the Jew is a paradoxical construction who regulates the self-regulating market, who fixes the prices determined by the interaction of supply and demand. We must eliminate him to gain control over this inhuman mechanism. Okay? In a certain sense, this kind of overlaps with, uh, it overlaps, but it's almost a kind of diametrically opposed image of, uh, of the way in which um, Marxists talk about anti-Semitism. Actually, I went to a conference earlier today which was talking about it still in exactly these terms, quoting Adorno and Horkheimer and so on, that, that the Jew is essentially associated with the center of the market system. Right? The market system has no center. Right, everything's everything is, is kind of in flux. It's dynamic. There's no one controlling, you know, prices and, and and you know supply and demand kind of continually interact. No one determines what the prices are. No one could determine what the prices are, and so on. This generates all kinds of again anxieties, resentments, and, and, and dissatisfactions. And so the Jew is essentially placed at the center of this. Okay, so so in, in that sense, in a sense, we you know we, we can agree with, with with the Marxists on this, except you know. The Marxist, this is you know a critique of the market system, whereas for, for Gans, it's it's um, uh, it's more of a, um, an inadequate understanding of or an inadequate engagement with the market system. Uh, but at any rate, he's saying something more here, which is the reason why Jews are put in this position. It's not just random. It's not like uh, um, you know the Nazis or the, those who came before the Nazis just kind of you know said Jews and, and put them at the center. But he sees this as connected with. Um, the, the discovery of monotheism by the Jews. In other words, that the notion of a God who kind of, um, uh, who can't be controlled through rituals. In other words, you can't make a demand upon God um, who's invisible, who's not, you know, who's not accessible in any way, right? You can, you, God, you know, gives you, gives you the law and you sort of follow the law and so on, but uh, you can't, uh, there's no sort of cause and effect with God in, in, in the Jewish understanding of monotheism. Uh, so, and then of course the Jews reject, you know, which he alludes to in, in the passage I just read, rejecting incarnation, right? So the Christians, you know, Christianity in a certain sense found this inaccessible, invisible God, sort of intolerable, right? So they, they incarnate in, in, in Jesus and the Jews kind of resisted that. So the Jews are kind of the inventors of monotheism, and here I'll, I'll just read what I, uh, you know, what I wrote in the it. Um, Anti-Semitism for Gans is ultimately predicated upon the paradox of the Jewish discovery of monotheism. The, Ju the Judaic revelation presented knowledge of a single God beyond the means of control of totemic religions and presented, and presented a single humanity whose knowledge of God is most profound, profoundly revealed in the reciprocal relations between humans. At the same time, so there's a God is universal, it's everybody's God, no one kind of has, has control of it, and so on. At the same time, this very revelation is granted to a single people, chosen to work out before the world the implications of this understanding of the divine. The spread of monotheism, already inscribed in its universalistic origin, could hardly take place other than through resentment towards those who both gave this God to humanity and selfishly claimed an exclusive relation to him. 
I mean, of course, we can see this, you know, very directly with, with, with the Christians, right, who sort of blame, you know, who kind of take the Jewish God and sort of universalize it and say, this is what it really meant all along, but at the same time develop this antagonism towards the Jews who don't go along with this, who still kind of hold on to their own sort of archaic and exclusive and, and sort of selfish relationship to God. And, and I mean, the same thing more or less takes place with Islam and, you know, in a different way. Okay. Um, what Gans calls Jewish, Jewish narrative monotheism uh, helps lay the groundwork for the eventual emergence of the modern market, not only by defetishizing local totems, but by separating faith in God and the obligation to follow the law from the national power and success of the Jewish people. If defeats and even destruction of the nation are given meaning by demands and promises that transcend those temporal events, the moral meaning can be found in the contingencies of history rather than the maintenance of a closed ritual system. I look at that a little bit differently. The, the, the idea here is, is that, uh, I mean, this is kind of a reading of, of the Bible, essentially, which suggests that, I mean, something very unique happens in, 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 you know, with the Jewish people in the Bible, which is they lose their homeland, their state is destroyed, um, but rather than just sort of abandoning God and then taking the God of whatever you know, new social system they get, you know, they get incorporated into, as, you know, as I'm pretty sure has been the case through most of history, right? You know, God protects you. If he doesn't protect you, if your community gets destroyed, well, then you go find protection from some other God. That doesn't happen with the Jews, right? They read, and the Bible is kind of a record of this, right? Reading all of these defeats and destruction and exile and so on as essentially messages from God, right? So history becomes meaningful, right? And again, this is something that, that Gans is suggesting that, uh, that the Jews invented, making that history can become meaningful because you're playing out the relationship between the nation and God's will through history. Uh, and again, I'm suggesting here that this is kind of a Jewish contribution to the modern market, ultimately, because the sorts of dispositions and attitudes and habits that you need to act on the modern market are, um, let's say, a kind of patience, right? There are ups and downs, right? And things go get better and things get worse. And you sort of, you know, you have patience to follow through a, a long historical process, and you don't assume that there's something going to kind of direct cause and effect between what you do today and what you get tomorrow, right? So this kind of, you know, long historical view that is needed for, you know, that you see even in, in you know, kind of modern Republican theories, you know, small off Republican theories of uh, um, of government have, you know, have, have this component to it, right? That uh, um, so the, the history of the nation is, is sort of the history of its, you know, um, the, you know, Spinoza is probably the best example of the sort of history of, of your following, you know, making good laws and following those laws and, and so on. Um, okay, um, but this contribution of Judaism to modernity collides with the more specifically Christian contribution, or rather the revision of Christianity constitutive of modernity. All right, what I'm starting to do here is kind of trace these two paths to modernity. I mean, kind of converging paths, one that comes from a sort of revision of Judaism, one that comes from a sort of revision of Christianity. And there's other stuff in modernity as well, but that's what I'm focusing on here. All right, according to Gans, and here I'm quoting again, where Jews had understood that the real center was inhabited by the being of the sign, the Christians realized that, it, that this being was generated and could be generated anew by an act interpretable as victimization. In other words, while Jewish victimization was already a sign of Jewish chosenness, Right, obviously, already for, for, for Judaism, the fact that you know that the Jews, you know, that there's antagonism towards the Jews is, is in a sense kind of proof of their election. This was a burden borne by Jews alone, 
right? The Jew, there's nothing in Judaism that kind of suggests that anybody else has to do this, right? That anybody else has to kind of form this, this, this unique relationship to God, and so on. For Christianity, the persecution of Jesus is imitable, and identification with it the source of salvation. Okay, so this is kind of where, where Christianity, in a sense, breaks with Judaism. But this also meant that Christianity provides the model for anti-Semitism. And here I'm quoting Gans again. The anti-Semite compels the Jew to enter the infernal circle of rivalry and persecution in order to reenact his own Christian conversion. He is the new Paul, and the Jew is the Saul he used to be. Okay, so again, here he's talking, there was a talk yesterday that kind of set up something similar, that, uh, that Christianity sort of needs this sort of persecutory relationship with, uh, with Judaism, this figure of the Jew to, to constitute itself. Okay, um, now... That it has to persecute the Jews, or that it has to be persecuted like the Jews? No, that it has to persecute the Jews. Right? But, but, but in, a, in a sense, you're picking up on, on something that I said, which I'll follow up on now, which is, Victimization and, and a persecutory attitude is central to, uh, uh, to Christianity, and it plays into modernity through Romanticism. Right? This is kind of, you know, Gans sort of works through what he calls the, the constitutive hypocrisy of Romanticism, which is the Romantic individual performs his rejection of the market system, right, and proclaims his sort of, you know, I mean, this goes back to Rousseau, who's sort of the, the first example of this proclaims this kind of unanimous rejection by all of you know, bourgeois society, um, and, uh, but does that ultimately in order to construct a compelling persona to operate within um, bourgeois society. I mean, you know, the, there are so many examples of this, it's so much a part of, 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 you know, of you know, capitalist or bourgeois society, whatever you want to call it, that you know, we, we just take for granted. I mean, just, I mean there, there's just these obvious examples like Jimmy Dean, not Jimmy Dean, James Dean, Right, whose, whose figure was exactly that. Right? So it's, it bourgeois. What? It bourgeois. Yeah, well, that, yeah, that, that's a big part. Right? Yeah, you, you arouse all of this antagonism towards you, but again, that just makes you the center of attention, right? And increases your value within bourgeois. And like, right, I mean, every movie star in some way kind of situates themselves. Rock stars in the whole history of American popular culture. You can talk about in this way. You shock people, and then you know, 20 years later, you get knighted, right? So. Um, so he's kind of tracing this, and again, you, you can sort of trace this back to Christianity. This is sort of, uh, you could say, secularization of you know, Christian understandings of victimization and, and persecution and so on, but in a, in a safer way now. You don't actually have to die at this point. It's, it's, it's kind of an act by now. Um, okay, in abiding tension with this individualistic gesture, so that's part of it. This is, this is, in other words, this is how the market develops. This is how you know, we kind of enter the market, right? This is why, you, you know, you, you, every, every you know, teenager has to have their own distinctive look, right? Every teenager has to be, you know, everyone's against me, I'm going to show who I really am, and, and, and so on. And that's how, you know, in, in our culture, that's how you develop, uh, you know, your, your individuality, right? By being persecuted and hated and, and, you know, kind of sacrificed, and then you sort of emerge with your own, uh, you know, with your own distinctive style out of that. I mean, it's, it's funny, it's kind of hypocrisy, but, but at the same time, it's productive, right? It sort of works and, and, and but, uh, you know, and I'm not sure we have something else right, to, you know, to replace it with. Um, the same, something very similar happens with nationalism, which is you know, the development of, of, of nationalism takes place in the same way. Each nation has to sort of liberate itself from some oppressor, whether it's internal or external, or it's a feudal regime, or it's, or, or it's some kind of you know, um, colonialist uh, oppressor, um, which at the same time is a kind of a medic model. Right? We want to be like the ones who, who are oppressing us, but we have to 
you know, be, you know, antagonize them, we have to struggle against them at the same time. Um, and again, you know, the na national liberation takes place in the same way through martyrs, right, who, who you know, um, become the, the founders of the nation and so on. Okay, then Ganzar views um, anti-Semitism intensifies in the bourgeois era because it is at this point in history that, that persecution, which grants significance, comes to be preferable to indifference. At this point, the Jews' indifference to Jesus is no longer a veil covering his guilt for the crucifixion. It is itself the ultimate persecution. To opt out of the theater of national life is ipso facto to operate in the hidden realm of conspiracy. The Jew is the ultimate dandy whose detachment from society, in principle, regardless of fact, is a sign of his omnipotence. The anthropological meaning of anti-Semitism may be expressed in terms of the market, but only insofar as the lesson of the modern market is itself understood as a trans-historical revelation concerning human exchange. The Jew is designated the subject of the market because, faithful to the empty center revealed by the burning bush, he remains in principle indifferent to the object, whether of persecution or adoration that he finds there. In other words, again, this goes back to saying that the, the Christians put a person at the center of their sacred scene, and the Jews don't, right? And so as you know, modernity develops through nations that also put the kind of figures at the center of the scene, and the, the Jews, again, it, it doesn't really matter what the Jews are actually doing at this point. They're, the, the configuration of the Jew-Christian relationship is configured in such a way that the Jews are seen as those who uh, are indifferent to what's at the center of the scene. So that by itself abstracts them from you know, what he calls the theater of, um, of, of, of national life. Um, and which again you know, goes, goes back to you know, the situation of Jews at the center. They must be hiding something, they must be controlling things behind the scene, and so on. Um, Okay, the fury of the, of the, here I'm, this is me, but I'm kind of going back into quoting in a second here. The fury of the Nazis' assault against the Jews gathered together all these threads of the anti-market revolt with a desperate attempt to displace the primacy of the Jews and falsify their narrative. Okay, and this is, this is a quote from Gans. Enraged at the Jews' monotheistic equanimity and defeat and disaster, the Nazis hoped to inflict, inflict on them a catastrophe so great that it could not be understood as a message of God to his people. Okay, which I think is actually a pretty original way of, of, of understanding what the Nazis were trying to do, right? To, to inflict a catastrophe so great that it, it wouldn't fit the narrative anymore. Right, all the other narratives. Right, in other words, all the other narratives, right, can be driven out of your homeland and so on, we can fit that in, God is punishing us and, and so on, but this is, this is too big, this kind of breaks the whole thing, which, which in some sense it did, right? That, that narrative sort of really hasn't worked for Jews. For after, many people. Uh, after, yeah, for, yeah, you know, well, we, we don't have to quantify it. I, I think probably for most Jews afterwards, but, but either way, it certainly damaged them significantly. Okay, so this is this is anti-Semitism up, up through through you know into into the capitalist period up through um, uh, the Holocaust. Okay, now something new happens. So I'll stop reading a bit and see if I need to stop. The ultimately omnicidal potential for human violence revealed by the Holocaust introduces something new into this equation. The Holocaust marks the beginning of the victimary era. So now this word victimary can start to take on a slightly different meaning, in which we are now living. The virulent hatred of the Nazis towards the Jews drew the world into a cataclysmic struggle, the like of which we will not survive again in the nuclear age. 
and and uh, Gans kind of talks about this in in, some, in in you know in various places that I'm sort of cutting out. Where you have to think about, I mean, the impact of the Holocaust, which Gans says some places is kind of the closest thing to a, to a to a divine revelation that that, that we've had in, in the modern period. Um, the impact of the Holocaust has to be sort of combined with Hiroshima, sort of coming right after, because not, not that there's any equivalence between Hiroshima and, and, and the Holocaust, but it's more that if you take the Holocaust and apply to it the means that we now have, as revealed through Hiroshima, then you get around. Then what? You get around. Well, well, maybe, maybe, but we get we get something we can't tolerate. Right. In other words, the Nazis with with, with the atomic bomb would, would kind of reach the levels of, of violence that you know we're at, we're at this point where it's not even clear humans could survive such a you know such, such a violent you know cataclysm at this point. Okay, so the eschewing of such hatred must be, at the, must be at the center of a new system of deferral constructed after the war. So whatever looks like, and of course, you know, what looks like is, 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 you know, can be very variable, whatever looks like the Nazi-Jew relation must be uncompromisingly prescribed. Okay, so in other words, what, what, what Gantz calls the victimary era now is where this Nazi-Jew um, asymmetry becomes sort of the model for all social relations. Right? So any asymmetry, however minor, you can talk about it now in terms of at least its potential to move towards this kind of extreme Nazi-Jew relationship. And I mean, again, I, you, if you really look at you know anything, anti-racist discussions, anti-colonialist, feminist, even environmentalist, anti-Islamophobic, anti-just about anything that, that's come out, you know, really since since World War II, it, it really takes this shape more and more, kind of mechanically and automatically. As time goes on, I mean, even now we have global warming deniers, right? So even even that's a, the notion of the denier it comes from Holocaust denial. So it's like this becomes this this vocabulary that's used to describe everything, right? Which of course creates an incentive to make one's own grievance fit that model, right? So in other words, your grievance will get the more attention the more you can frame it as analogous to the Nazi Jew model. And you can find it, I mean, really, you can find this all the way through. You can, write, you can easily write a whole paper. I mean, you can write a whole book showing, you know, the anti-colonial, anti-racist, how, you know, the Nazi Jew image or, or, you know, structure just became this all, you know, all-encompassing vocabulary that just was used to describe everything. And still today, I don't think it's any less so today. I think it's, it's even more intense today, which is, in a sense, we're, we're kind of stuck in something, right, is, is sort of the idea here. Um, because obviously this place limits on other ways of thinking about what might be less extreme antagonisms and, and makes problems that might be fairly easily solvable or at least sufferable seem intolerable and to require some kind of extreme solution. The Jews are once again placed in a paradoxical position. First of all, the response on the part of the Jews to the consequences of their utter defenselessness in the Holocaust is to create and with growing unanimity support a Jewish nation state. But the nation state, with its ethnic exclusivity, preparedness for belligerency, and narrow self-interest is one of those things that looks very much like Nazism. Second, the victimary principle can only be universalized if the Jewish monopoly on Holocaust guilt is broken. The best way to do so is to present the Jews as oppressors, at least just like the rest of us, at worst uniquely so insofar as they have exploited the world's guilt so as to perpetuate the very conditions that enable their own victimization, only this time at the expense of others. Finally, so again, this is, I mean, this kind of, I think this kind of 
converges with a lot of what we've been hearing the last couple of days. This very sort of unique, really hatred towards Israel comes from this, that the Jews were the victims and they used that victimization to kind of play this trick on everyone else and, and become victimizers in turn and, and so, so on. So the scapegoat reverses the role. Yeah, right. So, you know, Israel, the Jews have to kind of be flipped. It's really the way of Palestinian dignity. Yeah, right. Which, which of course, is, has been framed exactly in terms of Nazi Jew, right? And, uh, and here with this kind of added... That's the sadistic version. Yeah. Right, right. And, and, you know, which, which kind of has this added, yeah, it has this added sadism to it that you're calling, you know, Jews, Nazis now, and, and so on. It's got this kind of, uh, which increases the, you know, what's the word, frisson yeah. for, you know, for a lot of, uh, you know, anti-Israel, anti anti-Zionist people. Wow, we're calling, Jew, we're calling Jews Nazis. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't get more exciting than that, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, finally, then, the emergence of a new victim, the Palestinians, the victim of the Jews, completes the victimary metaphysics first set in motion by the essentially theological response to the Holocaust. The victimary system, then, depends upon this new expanded anti-Semitism in which the Jews are scapegoated for the crimes of the West as well as for the intensifying resentments toward the West. Mm -hmm. So the Jews are guilty of the crimes of the West, but they're also guilty for the fact that, that you know, that, well, that Islam is right, right, right. 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 Um, Coming now in particular from the most bitter, if not the oldest, of those resentments, that of Islam. Right. It was the Israeli victory in the 67th <laughs> war that made it possible to maneuver the Jews ideologically out of the victimized and into the victimizing position. But this maneuvering might have gone no further than the kind of standard anti-colonial critique applied to the U.S. and Vietnam or the European powers without the increasing abandonment of nationality on the part of the Western Europeans and the rise of radical Islam. In this context, as Gantz says, we are first of all, and I'll quote a little from Gantz again, struck by the similarity between medieval and modern Christian anti-Semitism. In both cases, the Jew is accused of remaining behind in the old Israel rather than entering the new Israel of Christianity. It is by this suspicious archaism that he betrays his immoral preference for honoring the historical memory of his monotheistic discovery over its inherent promise of universality. So the Jew preserves his own privileged relation to God over you know, the benefits of, um, of God for everybody, right? the dissemination of, of, of this message, message to everybody. Whether well-poisoned or a protocol worshiper, the Jew is accused of refusing to love his, his non-Jewish neighbor as himself. Okay. Um. It's really not his non-Jewish neighbor as himself. It's his non-Jewish neighbor as his fellow Jew. Yes. He's, he's being accused of not allowing the Gentile into the circle right. of us, mm -hmm. even if he treats him well. Yeah, that's right. Because there's always some, you know, there's always some, you know, added value right. to the, you know, to, to the intra-Jewish relationship. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll skip a little bit here um, and uh, get to his discussion about about Islam, which, which um, and, and how that plays into it, and then kind of finish up with the most politically influential currents of contemporary Islam. Meanwhile, we do most emphatically see a rejection of the market. In other words, Europe is maybe rejecting nationality, but they're not really quite rejecting the economic market, right? They're rejecting, you know, what I would suggest, and I think Gans is, is suggesting is, is a component of the market. You can't have, ultimately, I don't think you can have, a, you can have a, an economic market without nation states, because without nation states, you can't really have a rule of law where those applying the law, implementing the law, making the law, aren't some way accountable to those who the law is applied to. I mean, I, I, it doesn't really work on a global scale, right? You need sort of more, uh, more local and national units to, to do that. 
Um, but at any rate, the European antagonism towards Israel comes from, you know, the, again, the Europeans were moving past all that. You know, nationality, nationalism, that's what led us to, you know, to the Holocaust and, and all that other stuff. We're moving past that, but Israel just keeps dragging us back, right, into, into this muck and mire of nationality and, and all the wars and antagonism that, that comes with it. You know, when you're referring to the, the economic market, uh, I've in the past been a consultant for the World Health Organization, and uh, Israel is in with the European countries because of their association, obviously, uh, their lack of, of solidarity with the Middle East. And it's strange because when you take a look at the economy of Israel, and the economy of Europe, you're probably much closer than the economy of Israel and their neighbors. But uh, they've been banned from being in the Eastern Mediterranean region of the World Health Organization right. and, and assigned a role in uh, with the European group. They don't fit. <laughs> right, yeah. I mean, they, first of all, they have to be recognized by all those countries. <laughs> right? I guess that you have to participate in an organization with them. Um, so um, maybe, let's see, maybe. Uh, I mean, okay, I mean, the way in which he talks about Islamic anti Semitism in particular Which is. What's his first name? Eric. Okay. E R I I C. And uh, I mean, if, if you want to learn more about, about Gans and all of this, he's got a website called Anthropoetics. Generative Anthropology yeah, that's and it. Way of Thinking. That's it. That's it. Anthropoetics. Anthropoetics, the true of generative anthropology. Yeah, and he's got, like, there's nothing to write here with, but uh, A-N-T-H. Yes. Um, it's, um, it's a journal, and he's got there, and most of what I'm actually quoting from is, is if you see on that. Um, his full name is? Eric Gans. Anthro. Yeah, it's a it's a website, it's got the journal, it's got what he calls the Chronicles of Love and Resentment. And most of what I'm quoting is actually from that. Those he, likes, are, he likes your stuff too. Yeah, yeah. We've been working together. I, I kinda of found out about this now. It's only about ten years since and so you know, we we become friends and I, you know it's a big ants family in New Haven. Oh yeah, that's a that's yeah, a pretty common name also. Right. I've seen a lot of places right. lately. Um, so, I mean, he he talks about Islamic anti-Semitism mostly in terms of um, uh, Muslims, at least radical Muslims, kind of see themselves as outside of the market, as opposed to with the European countries, it was the Jews kind of usurping within a country, but with with, with the Islamists, it's more of a sort of global antagonism from outside the market to inside the market. Um, and um, I'll, I'll just read the conclusion, then we'll come back and talk about anything that I want to put you in. I'll give it a lot of chance to, to talk yeah, as well. Do we have to finish it? Oh, okay. No, we have 45. 345. 345, okay. 345 is 307-ish. Yeah. Okay, so I'll, I'll just read, just take me five. About five minutes and then Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess I'm just saying, I mean, the, the conclusion, I think, is, is we cannot effectively address this emergent anti-Semitism without addressing the pathology surrounding the global market. On the one hand, the form taken on the marketplace by what Gantz calls Jewish firstness, which is kind of, again, the discovery of anti-Semitism, 
the discovery of monotheism and so on, is that of the centrality of the entrepreneur who organizes capital and introduces a new division of labor and creates new desires. Despite claims of consumer supremacy, which is kind of one of the, the ways we talk about in you know, a market society where the consumer is you know, sovereign and so on, one source of the mysteriousness of the market's workings is precisely that new, market, new products enter the market before anyone has been asking for them or has even thought of them. Tales of consumer manipulation take on their plausibility from this fact. In other words, things really do come out into the market, right, that nobody's been looking for, that, uh, um, that seems to be coming from nowhere. Similarly, the solicitation of investment capital from the outside inevitably looks conspiratorial, especially when heavily regulated markets require political maneuvering before new projects can get off the ground. We can see exploitative and deceptive entrepreneurial practices as exceptions to the rule in a fundamentally beneficial market process. Or we can see the honest worker and consumer as the victim of malevolent and unaccountable market players. Which perspective we adopt, and I'm, which perspective we adopt doesn't depend upon the facts, right? It's, it, it's kind of a fundamental starting point, either the, either the, I mean, it's not like you can add up the bad things um, businessmen do versus the good things they do and kind of arrive at a conclusion based on that. So it's kind of a more fundamental attitude towards what you think the market is. Which perspective we adopt will determine the way we think about regulating economic institutions and only a fundamentally benevolent view of the market will make it possible to accept the basic asymmetry between producers and consumers capital and labor and resist the search for scapegoats for our disappointments on the market. So I'll just leave it there and just say that, I mean, the only way to get over anti-Semitism ultimately, if, if the Jew is kind of placed at the center of the market, is to, in a sense, grow up and have a mature view of, of, of the market. It's not going to be transcendent and we're not going to overcome it. We're not going to come up with some more authentic way of distributing economic products. We're always going to have this market, which is indirect, which is complicated, which disappoints, which leads to corruption and all kinds of other things. And you have to kind of, if that's our horizon, then you have a totally different attitude towards it. And then anti-Semitism kind of gets marginalized. Yeah. Did you go to the session, <coughs> the last set of breakout sections, sessions, there was a talk by Bjorn Milbrandt, University of Marburg, conceptualizing contemporary anti-Semitism in Germany, theoretical, whatever. One of the things that he pointed out was that <coughs> without it being anti-Semitic at all, uh, German um, media is pervaded by images of uh, market forces that really are just drawing Nazi imagery but removing the direct connection to Jews but sort of cockroaches and, and locusts that devour and so on, using all these metaphors to describe the bosses. Um, so yeah, in that sense, a, a profoundly immature yeah. understanding. Yeah. And I was sort of like the Jew. And that's what he said. He said, look, you know, it's only, all you have to do is put a little Jewish star in the eye of the cockroach and uh, you're there. Yeah, yeah. And that's, uh, that's, that's pretty much right. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, I better I'll be reading because my English is not so good. <laughs> so, I better be reading. Um, in my paper, um, I, I will try to, to bring something very different from everything that I have been listening to. States here. I'm a psychoanalyst and an anthropologist, a sociopathologist, 
and um, have been working the last few years with uh, a philosophy, they call it Edith Stein, I don't know if somebody has heard about it. She's structure, 
demonstrating that it is a life experience that allows us to recognize human authority. We have true empathy and experience that inform us about a structural similarity with the other, although we are configured concretely in different manners. The empathy or entropy is the recognition of authority, a cognitive fact. Authority tells me there is something similar to me in the other human being, although reaction in a psychic level could be different. Our psychic, psychic life is very important to us. Through it, we feel sympathy, attraction, and even love as a possibility to be good to another person, allowing him to develop and fulfill himself in a spontaneous choice. We can also feel antipathy that in extreme can make us hate the other, which as a spontaneous attitude from us leads us, lead us to try to eliminate the other human being and to deny his humanity. This causes extreme intolerance as occurred with Nazism through Jews, homosexuals, deficits, gypsies, among others. Human beings are plastic, expressing themselves culturally in different, very different ways. But their physical structures are similar, what make all of us human beings in spite of having different psychic attitudes. At its time, made a complete lead phenomenological analysis in her book, The Structure of Human Person, in the year 1933, where she speaks about of the body, the psyche, and the spirit. Each human being is similar, unique, but shares with the other human beings the same structure. Their perceived grasp is structurally similar. Everything that happens to us is connected to our structure where attraction and repulsion are always present. In her works, Edelstein demonstrated that the refusal of similarity of the structure of the human person can make one hate different. Beyond the psychic and cultural difference, this is the common humanity with a common fundamental and basic dimension in the necessities and primary affections. Edison lived in the center of the crucial historic events that shaped the first half of the last century. As an intellectual deeply involved with the question of her time, she dedicated herself not only on philosophical issues, but also pedagogical, political, and religious matters, and even about the female, female condition. Edith was part of a little-known group who converted Jews to Catholicism. Uh, she born in Breslau, now Poland, in a liberal Jewish family. And I, uh, I go through this because I already talked about it. Uh, she was always interested in collective events, that's what I said. And she, uh, she soon, she understand, understood that the National Socialism was not only a political party, but proposed itself as a myth and a, a way of life. 
the political events of 33 in Germany contributed this time already occurred to react beginning to write beginning to begin to write her autobiographic book called About the Family About the Life of a Jewish Family, with the intention that she mentioned the preface to show the life of a Jewish family. She always kept very strong ties with Judaism, mainly with her mother, her family, and the Jewish community, which constituted her view information, and more widely with the Jewish people, to which she always mentioned to belong. This is even after she converted? Even after. Even after. <laughs> Through her family story, she wanted to give a concrete example of a Jewish community linked not only on blood ties, opposing to those who supported the idea that it is a race that delineate and distinguish human beings. Analyzing the notion of people in one of her works, she said that the blood ties are relative, being predominant the spiritual legacies. For her, people is a spiritual community. At this time, so the Nazi phenomenon sustained among the other reasons by the mistake of approaching the human being and the world from the illuminist and the irrationalist point of view. During the stern turmoil days, Edstein also wrote a letter to Pope Pius XI. This letter has religious, moral, and political values because she asked him to take a spiritual position, to leave his silence and write an encyclical condemning anti-Judaism, alerting him to the dangers of Hitlerism for the Catholic Church itself, of which neither negotiations nor collaborationist politics will save. The symptoms were very deep, in many sensible zones, as education, youth, human rights, race, atheism, totalitarianism. Her diagnosis was very accurate because she takes a stand that placed her among the victims. But she did get no answer to this letter and was very much disappointed. And in her, in her own words, she wrote, I noticed some Pope received my letter. I'm sure he may remember it many times because she was very diagnosing very well what was going to happen. Her foresights were born from deep studies, clear information, interior liberty, ethical indignation, solidarity feelings, high conceptions of politics and state of dignity and knowledge of the rights of human persons. Neither the letter nor her written family story gave any immediate fruits, but they are documents of an extraordinary moral strength and immense historic value that make possible comprehend what was life's situation at that moment. Edith Stein's life is unsociable from the story of the Jewish people and as the Portuguese and Spanish converts of the 16th century, she was persecuted and murdered, not for her ideas or creed, but for her Jewish origin, 
even though she converted to Catholicism and turned it to be a Carmelite nun. Pope Jean Paul II, when he canonized her in October 1998 with the name of Saint Teresa Benedict of the Cross, said, Jew, philosopher, Carmelite, martyr. She brings in her intense life a dramatic synthesis of hers of our century. The work of Edith Stein has been translated to many languages, as I said, and studied intensely, intensely in these last years. She criticized the modern world, the originated national socialism and Stalinism, questioning the potential disease of the human being resulting from the epistemological perspective of the theories used for these studies and treatments. And this is very important because we still today use the same perspective to study the man ourselves and to treat, and, and then, then I'm thinking about uh, the psychological and the medical treatments we use to take care of ourselves, and this, and, man, and many of these uh, methodological and epistemological uh, ways are very uh, are making us more sick. In the, in, instead of, of taking care and solve of our problems, and she stands her view of our situation lived by human beings in our days worried with the dignity of every human, every human being, and already warning us from the 30s of last century about the enormous dangers of our modern society, such as pragmatism, efficiency, directing our eyes to the essential. To be able to admit the other, the different, the strange, we must enlarge profoundly our dimensions and accept the differences. Welcoming the other is based in acknowledgement of similarities, but also implies in a moral and ethic attitude. Even if the other, the different, the stranger, bother me, and I feel antipathy for him, and want to eliminate him from my path, is a human being like me. This ethic question, suggested and so important at its time, will be touched in the following other psychoanalytical approach. And now I'm, I want to call the attention to the contribution of psychoanalytical uh, um, experience uh, and how we, we see nowadays the ethical experience that we, some, we are able to have um, like human beings. How we can have an ethical experience? <laughs> it's not a simple thing. <laughs> the recognition of the other in his diversity is expressed in the same etymology of the Greek word ethos, from which derives ethic, that brings us two meanings, home and homeland. The first is a place to live. The second emphasizes social bonds from which we urge. The word ethic refers to the necessary condition for human ethnicity and, the, uh, and all, 
allows each subject to live in a world inserted in a community. Home, home, here, homeland, a place to live, means a place to be that is direct and profoundly related to the question of the meaning of life. This place, considered a condition to the emergence of the being, is, in reality, the we inside which the subject can build his singularity. It is the founding relation with others, the belonging to a collective group, being part of a community that constitutes the basic condition to become the subject and to develop, to develop its singularity. Usually, the ethical experience, experience is seen as fruit of learning, of aggregation to a personality that is being formed, organized, what leads to the importance of a socially given to education, helping children in formation through which the ethical register as a personal experience. That's what uh, normally we think, that we will teach a child to be ethic. We teach him. But, but in the contemporary psychoanalytical clinic, we have the necessity of paying attention to the base of the human condition. And what we have seen is that the ethical question is not only an aggregated register, an acquisition due to learning, but is part of the human condition itself, of what is original. Thus, there is, from the beginning, a forebonding of the ethic. This is a very interesting phenomenon. A child that can experiment being carried in any way receives an offer of an experience that gives her some knowledge about ethic, a founding element upon which countless other psychic elements can happen. Can follow? Mm -hmm. Prior to be an action, care defines an attitude that expresses the consideration for the other and his necessities. When this ethical care doesn't happen, we have the presence of ruptures, 